morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Amy Place, and I am a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since 1870, UUWASA has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter, follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. I have three announcements this morning. In March through June, we're going to be offering Taking Flight, a sexuality education program based on Our Whole Lives, OWL, for youth in 7th through 9th grade. This program is open to UUWASA youth, and you can find more information in your yellow pages. In-person elementary RE returns February 6th. Please read the green page in your order of worship for several updates about our new neighbors from Afghanistan, as well as opportunities to help. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise now in spirit or body for our opening hymn number 347. Gather the Spirit.
reciting the church's affirmation, the words you'll find in your order of worship. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. Nor doxology. have a seat. I have this morning's story for all ages, and I thought I'd start with a question to this congregation, one that I have probably asked before, but I'm going to ask it again. What do Unitarian Universalists agree about? It's a real question. I'd like an answer. Even gesture towards the answer, friends. What do Unitarian Universalists agree about? Go ahead. The dignity of the person. The dignity of people. Does anybody here disagree? Does anybody here think that people have no dignity? Would anybody like to challenge that statement this morning? I think I actually wrote a paper challenging the inherent worth and dignity of all people in seminary, but uh, I'll spare you that. Um, in any case, I ask that question because often Unitarian Universalists seem to have an inherent struggle with exactly what our churches do, especially from a worship perspective. Everybody has their own idea of what should happen and what shouldn't happen in worship. And that's the most important thing that we do, right? We come together as one body one week and we orient our collective cares and our attention towards one thing together. It's the most important thing we do. There's nothing more important. That is the glowing coal of our churches. But we even argue about that. 
This came into my mind, this question, this inquiry came into my mind this last week when I read that the Buddhist peace activist and monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm sure many of you read about it in the newspaper that he died. Interestingly, I found an encounter that a Franciscan priest had when in the middle to the late 1980s, he flew to France to be a part of Plum Village, which is the community that Thich Nhat Hanh founded there in France. So, imagine you have a Catholic priest going to a Buddhist monastery, if you will. And he wrote of his encounter, and I was incredibly touched by what he said. And I think it's important for Unitarian Universalists, especially our kids who might be listening online, who might be here, to think about how our communities stay together, because I think this priest helps you use get at maintaining community in our diversity. So, the first thing you notice is when he went into the Zindo, and the Zindo was where the community came together to meditate a few times a day, what he found on the mantelpiece were Buddhist icons side by side with Christian icons. But the point of coming together every day wasn't to argue Christianity versus Buddhism or anything else anybody brought. They came there to do what? To be mindful together. To orient their collective attention to that which they could agree upon. But I wrote some of these things down because they're so important I didn't want to get them wrong. So, one of the main questions that they ask whenever you're at this village is this. How do I and how do we together learn how to just be and just relax? How can I be myself so that I can be present for more people? How many of you care about that question? Everybody here. We all agree about that. How can I just be so that I can be for others? That's a question at the heart of Plum Village. That's what the Zindo gathered multiple times today to meditate about. Then this really struck me. The priest noticed this in the manual for how to be a part of this village. He wrote, in Plum Village, there was very little value placed on belief. There's very little value placed on creeds and other religious preoccupations. The only thing they cared about was the things that you cared about enough that would cause you to act. If all it was was an argument you wanted to have about someone, about what should or shouldn't be happening, there was no patience, no tolerance. You would not be given any attention unless that thing caused you but the point of acting on behalf of the community was to learn how to be a deeper, more integral part of the community. Not to be selfish, not to grind an axe. I want to move on to the next part that the priest noticed. The priest was encouraged over the course of his time with Plum Village to answer this question and to keep it in mind. How can I translate my understanding of compassion, mutual service, or peace into practical deeds? So you ask yourself, what matters most to me? And then, how do I put that into action? And not just big service commitments, not just big social justice efforts, but the way that we literally relate with one another. Now here's the part that I loved. Whenever you're a part of Plum Village, everybody gets a guideline, a manual, for how to be a part of relationship. Sort of wonder if maybe our church would be better served by just shredding all of our bylaws 
all of our policies of the board and just got guidelines for the way that we are in relationship with one another? I'd vote yes if that ever came up to the board. But I don't know if you guys know this, they strategically don't give me a vote. So anyways, it's never going to happen. So in Plum Village's Guidelines for Mutual Living, if anybody finds a copy of this book, I'll pay you back if you buy me a copy of it because I can't find one. It says this, and I'm directly quoting from it. Every member bears responsibility for contributing to the peace and happiness of the same, of the community. And if he does not have this within him, he must ask others for help. Be aware that it is a great privilege to be a part of a community. Do you get that? If you are having trouble being a part of a community, if there's an idea or a concept or a person that you're having difficulty relating it to, what would you do in Plum Village? You would go up to that person and you would say, I need help. I need help being in a relationship with you. I need help being in a relationship with this community. I need help doing that which matters most to me because I can't do it alone. That's the core of my children's message this morning. So please join me in singing our children's song, the words are in your order of worship. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you.
like to invite everyone to join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. I just encourage people as you prepare to enter a time of silence to scan your, to scan your body. So let's start with a body scan. You can start by closing your eyes if you feel like it. Take a moment to be present just with your eyes closed, your racing thoughts. Now move your awareness to the top of your head. Maybe the air is in your hair or on your scalp. Feel your shoulders, the weight in them, maybe an ache in your back. Move down into your stomach. Feel its warmth and take a deep breath into your stomach and out. Great giving heart of happiness when all the world seems cold and wet. It's somehow easier to find the places where there doesn't seem to be love enough to go around. The holidays are long behind us now, and we seem to miss their tinsel distractions as we step out into the cold. We watch as little signs of hope are tossed aside, voices for change and healing rejected because it came from somewhere we don't like. But help us to hear hope. Help us to believe that promises can be fulfilled. Help us accept that it is often easier for us to see the problem rather than the possibility. The frozen ground is everywhere, and the cold pushes us in, but our faith calls us out. So hopeful promise of spring, we bring our prayers for those in pain, for those whose burdens keep them in the cold, for those whose sorrow falls like freezing rain. Hear now our prayers for faith and hope and love. And now, dear friends, let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for our prayer hymn number 123, Prayer Spirit of Life.
For today's sermon, I selected a reading, a poem, by the poet David White entitled The House of Belonging. And the poet writes, I awoke this morning in the gold light turning this way and that, thinking for a moment it was one day like any other. But the veil had gone from my darkened heart, and I thought it must have been the quiet candlelight that filled my room. It must have been the first easy rhythm with which I breathed myself to sleep. It must have been the prayer, I said, speaking to the otherness of the night. And I thought this is the good day you could meet your love. I thought that this is the gray day someone close to you could die. This is the day you realize how easily the thread is broken between this world and the next. And I found myself sitting up in the quiet pathway of the light, the tawny, close-grained cedar burning round me like a fire, and all the angels of this housely heaven ascending through the first roof of light the sun has made. This is the bright home in which I live. This is where I ask my friends to come. This is where I want to love all the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. This is my temple, my temple of my adult aloneness, and I belong to that aloneness just as I belong to my life. There is no house like the house of belonging. There it ends our reading.
When I was a kid, my family took long road trips. We'd drive from Missouri to Florida to visit my grandparents or to Louisiana to visit my aunt. We'd usually plan stops along the way to sightsee and eat local food. Now you have to imagine this was before everyone had a GPS in their pocket and so some of these trips turned into unintended adventures. Now the cause of these unintended adventures was the result of my father's adamant belief that admitting you're lost and asking for directions was something only immoral scoundrels would ever dare think of. My mom would say, she would say, just pull over and ask for directions. And my dad would drive past gas stations and diners by the dozen, and he would say, oh, Linda, give it a rest. We're almost there. And if it weren't for divine intervention, I have this thought that we would probably still be driving around some Louisiana swamp, listening to my dad insist that he knew where we were going. As a result of this, I vowed as a boy, I said, whenever I get lost, I will always ask for directions. Now fast forward with me two decades to just a few summers ago when my wife and I were driving around northern Wisconsin in search of a cabin we had rented. Now I was counting on my cell phone to get us there, but it turns out that there are parts of Wisconsin where the only thing cell phones are good for is cursing them. And so, after driving down what felt like the same country roads, my wife said, Brian, she said, let's backtrack to one of the gas stations and let's just ask for directions. And without even thinking, I turned to her and I said, oh, Sarah, give it a rest. We're almost there. And then my daughter, she piped up from the back seat and she said, Dad, whenever I grow up, I will always ask for directions whenever I get lost. The fact of the matter is we all get lost and everyone needs direction. But the problem is we too often refuse to admit that we're lost and that we need help. But everyone needs help. Turns out there's actually a term for this kind of thinking and it's called the sunk cost fallacy. So consider this, the sunk cost fallacy, it happens whenever we convince ourselves that something we're doing or something we've decided is beyond questioning. And so we literally stop thinking. So this happens in business all the time. People have this vision, they invest a lot of money in it, they get bad results, and everybody they know says, cut your losses. But whenever you're a victim to this, you become so convinced of your own vision that you actually invest more money because you think doing so you're somehow going to get it all back, but this rarely ever happens. But when you're blinded by your own certainty, it's easy to sink more time and more money into something only to get back the same bad results. Family and friends, when this happens, they can't bear to watch, and so they slowly start to pull away. In other words, we drive around convinced we know where we're going, even though everyone in the car, in the gas station, you passed 30 times in the last two hours, they all keep telling you that you need help. But yet you keep insisting, we're almost there, even though you have no idea where you are, much less where you're going and how you're going to get to your destination. I think it's fair to say that, generally speaking, for most issues, 
If you cannot imagine something that would cause you to change your mind, then you are a victim of the power of sunk costs. I also think that it's fair to say that there are a lot of us, a lot of this thinking going around, which is to say that there are a lot of people, and maybe you're like me and you're one of them some, some of the time, that you become so wedded to your own ideas that you don't even stop to wonder if maybe you're lost or if you're hurting someone in the process. I started thinking about this last year when I came across a 2015 study of American mothers, and they were surveyed and they were asked this question, are you estranged from one or more of your children? American mothers, are you estranged from one or more of your children? The study showed that 11% of American mothers reported total estrangement from their children. One in every 10 mothers. But get this, an eye-popping 62% of American mothers reporting having contact with their children less than once a month. 62%. Now as a pastor, as a son, as a stepson, as a brother, and as a human being, I fully accept that there are good reasons to distance oneself from family or friends. But 62% is an alarming number, and it made me wonder if some of what's happening in this modern era has to do with the fallacy of sunk costs. Now, as necessary as it can be to distance from family, sociologists note that the motivations for family breakups, they underwent a seismic shift right around the middle of the 20th century. Now, this change didn't happen overnight, but research shows that prior to the 19th century, what people and families tended to fight about were tangible things. People fought about things like land. They fought about their inheritance. They fought about property. Now, don't get me wrong. People still fight about all that stuff. But these old fights have intensified in recent decades because of something totally distinctive to our era, and it's this. Our conflicts in the modern era are often psychological rather than material. And I think we'd all agree that psychological conflicts, like deciding when to cut our losses and to change course, decisions like this are much harder than trying to figure out who gets grandma's porcelain squirrels. I got grandma's porcelain squirrels. That's where that came from. So the sociologist Andrew Cherlin, he wrote an amazing study on this, and it shows how traditional sources of identity, back in the day, the traditional sources of identity were things like class and religion and community. These have been replaced with an emphasis on personal growth and happiness. What's interesting about this phenomenon is it actually tracks right alongside the increased emphasis on personal growth and happiness and also the rise in the popularity of self-help books that started in the middle of the 19th century as well. So one of the unique features about family estrangement today is how it's often regarded by the people who choose to stay away as an expression of their personal growth and actually a pathway to their happiness. So just think for a moment. You've chosen to stay away from someone, and you actually couple it to your own happiness. Now let me repeat what I said earlier. There are good, and sometimes very good reasons, to walk away or stay away. 
But as one author in these studies noted, we are all flawed. And we should keep our flaws in mind any time we are deciding who to keep in or who to keep out. Further, the author notes, that we would be wise to bear this in mind whenever we are deciding how to respond to someone who tells us, I don't want you in my life anymore. What the sociologists invite us to consider is the sunk cost fallacy, which is just a fancy metaphor for saying that we should be skeptical of our certainty. Now, when I was in seminary, there were students from every imaginable walk of life. There were Christians from a half dozen African nations. There were people from Sri Lanka. There were people from India. There were Methodists and pagans. There were members of the United Church of Christ. There were Lutherans. There were Unitarian Universalists. There were Unitarians considering Christ. And there were Christian agnostics. Now, because of this, what our professors would tell us whenever we went to orientation in the weeks before seminary started, they would say, you all need to learn how to adopt this epistemic or epistemological humility. In other words, what they said is they said, students, be humble. Be open to someone else's story and don't fall victim to your own certainty. So if you can imagine, go back in time with me to early 2020, right as the nation was just getting braced for the pandemic. And if you would have opened up your New York Times one Sunday morning, the columnist, Farrard Manju, he noted that many of his colleagues on both sides of the socio-political spectrum were possessing what he called unwarranted certainty. That's a direct quote. I'm going to quote just a little section of that article now. Here's the author. I worry that unwarranted certainty and an underappreciation of the unknown might be our collective downfall because it blinds us to a new dynamic governing humanity. The world is getting more complicated and therefore less predictable, end quote. So to expand Manju's point that the world is getting more complicated and less predictable, return with me to the topic of family dynamics. So data shows that on average, today's parents give up more free time to spend with their kids than any generation ever. Today's parents actually report sacrificing friendships, skipping parties, neglecting marriages, turning down better jobs, and the like, in order to be hyper-involved with their kids. Now, one might think that this stance, this style of parenting, which rose to prominence about 50 years ago, that the incidences of family estrangement would actually be on the decline, but the opposite, it turns out to be true. Family estrangement continues to rise. So the question I want us to think about for the rest of our time this morning is, how do I remain part of community rather than apart from it. So in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes, quote, So then, putting away falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. So today's neuroscientists, they sound a lot like St. Paul, at least whenever they're talking about topics like belonging to one another. So what today's neuroscientists tell us, and what the ministers and our prophets of our faith have told us for centuries 
is that we really and truly are members of one another. Just think about the act of thinking. Even the act of thinking is impossible without other people. And even if thinking were possible in a vacuum, what would it be good for? Thinking is a wonderfully social act, and everything you thought, literally everything you think, is a response to something someone else has thought or someone else has said. But in recent years, the very act of thinking has come under enormous pressure to achieve uniformity. There's no give in the middle in the sense that powerful narratives held by powerful majorities emerge. These majorities insist on what is and what isn't talked about. And then they tell you when it's time to drop this thing for that thing. If you want an example of what I'm talking about, just consider how the national news, it tends to monofocus on a topic, and then it moves on to the next best thing, as if the last thing it was reporting on just disappeared. What this ends up doing is it makes us focus with, one, with a maniacal intensity on one thing. And with that one thing, there's only one way to be right, and there's only one way to be wrong, depending on the side of the aisle that you happen to be standing on. But the problem with this is that when there's no room for give in the middle, it's very hard to put concerns into play. So if you look elsewhere in St. Paul's letter that I quoted earlier, he says, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. I'd like to summarize St. Paul like this. Don't forget that political, social, and religious differences are not the whole of human experience. There's a lot of life that happens between the headlines. So there's this great Roman poet, Terence, and he said something in one of his poems that I think everyone here can relate to. I'm going to quote. Terence wrote, I am human, and nothing human is alien to me. That people do stupid or awful or amazing things, it probably shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone older than nine years old. But when we lose sight of Terence's wisdom about humankind, we invite dangers, especially when we assume that the most important thing in our life is our own personal happiness and our own self-improvement. And I'm not trying to suggest that happiness isn't important. Happiness is important. Nor am I suggesting that all difficulties are temporary because some difficulties can indeed last a lifetime. And I'm also not suggesting that social categories are worthless because identity matters. But we'd be wise to review the pages of history for a reminder that the categories humans inherit and create can lose their relevance. In the end, it is a moral failure not to recognize other contexts and dialects and that other people have values unlike our own that still deserve respect. Moreover, it is an ethical failure to assume that when you're lost, all you need to do is forge ahead. And we'd be wise to bear this in mind in all things. We are ultimately members of one another. The separate strands of our faith, Unitarianism and Universalism, they grew from absolutely separate seeds. One professed faith in Christ— 
and Christ's resurrection as an earthly expression of God's universal love for all of humankind. The other strand said that all of us have been endowed with a sacred gift, and that gift is our thought. And with that gift, we have a responsibility to find out how to make life and living a little bit better, a little bit freer, and a little bit fairer for everyone. And even when those representatives of those two faiths gathered in Boston in 1961 to finalize the creation of the modern-day Unitarian Universalist movement, they knew then that some of the disagreements we have would never be resolved. And they knew this, and yet they also knew that the only remedy for the danger of false belonging is true belonging, true membership, and a fellowship of people who are not so much like-minded as like-hearted. To live like this, you have to be a certain kind of person. You have to be the kind of person who at least some of the time cares more about working towards what we can agree to care for than about your social position or your platform or your personal happiness. Because we all get lost. Everybody needs direction. And sometimes you have to pull the car off the road. You have to open up the door, you have to get out, and you have to admit to yourself and someone else, and you say, I can't do this alone. Self-improvement and personal happiness are only parts of life. The other is to discover ways beyond what we can be on our own so that we can learn to live more for others. This is our calling. So may it be. Amen. Please rise with me in spirit or body for our closing hymn, number 407. We're going to sit at the welcome table.
morning with someone, you're welcome to take their hand now. If not, reach out with your hearts. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear, may it lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. You're welcome to have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude. See you soon. Thank you.